praise God for the painful stuff you're going through. Man, that is something the enemy absolutely hates because what you're saying to the enemy is, I think God's in control of that too. And he's somehow working that for my good and his glory. So in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God will come through for you. Are you living a courageous life? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. If you've been following along on our broadcast, you know that we're in an intensive study on the Gospel of John. Today, we'll look at the seventh chapter where Jesus taught courageously, even in a time when his own brothers didn't believe in him. Here's David with a message called Contagious Courage. Whenever you study a text in the Bible, you need to know its context. What we've just completed in John the sixth chapter, as we get ready to move into today's verses, John 7 verses 1 through 24, a message entitled, Contagious Courage. What do you do when you know people want to kill you for the stands that you take for loving Jesus? Now, before this happens, Jesus had the 15 to 20,000 who were following him. He laid down the cost of discipleship. He talked very clearly about the fact he was God, that he came to forgive people of their, their sins, and thirdly, that we must eat of his uh, body and drink of his blood to follow him. And that's a euphemism, a metaphor, for it means totally following him. As he was willing to die for us, we're willing to die for him. And he laid down the cost of following him, and the fifteen to 20,000 melted to 12 in a moment. Just in a heartbeat, just in the snap of a finger, they went away. And then Jesus looked at his other disciples, the 12 remaining, and said, you going to leave me too? And that's when Simon Peter, the spokesperson for the group, said, Lord, where else are we going to go? Only you hold the words to eternal life. And so true is that statement. Now, after this is where we begin in John 7, verse 1. After this experience where the 15 to 20,000 left Jesus when they learned about what it would mean to follow him, that they would have to be willing at least to give their lives for him. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That word seeking could also be hunting. They were trying to hunt him down to kill him. Now, you know that on the back of your hand, you have a map of Israel. Uh, the back of your palm is Judea, the southern part of Israel. Up to your first knuckle there is Samaria. And then north of your first knuckle there would be Galilee. And that's where Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Um, he lived a lot of his time in Galilee. So he was here in Galilee and didn't want to go south to Judea because he knew there were people plotting to kill him. This goes back to John, the fifth chapter. Remember when Jesus healed a guy who hadn't walked for 38 years? Can you imagine? Sitting by the pool of Bethesda, Jesus walks by and says, do you want to get well? And I'm sure the guy stammered and went, are you kidding me? Of course I want to get well. And Jesus says, take up your pallet and walk. And he got up and walked in the religious leaders, the Jews, capital J, whenever you see that in the Bible is referring to the religious leaders, highly objected, not to the guy getting healed, but to the guy getting healed on the Sabbath. That was working on the Sabbath and it broke their laws. And it was at that point when Jesus broke the laws of the Sabbath and then claimed deity, saying the Father was the one who sent him and told him to do these things. When that happened, they started their plot, their hunt, their persecution to kill him. Verse two, now the Jews 
Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, the Feast of Booths is an interesting feast. Um, It's one of only three that every male was demanded to go attend. Uh, It annually occurred right at the end of the harvest time period. It would be much like our 4th of July celebration, kind of the end of the school year. Everybody's going, we've worked hard. The harvest has been taken in. So they're to gather together for one week in Jerusalem, and very wealthy people and very poor people would come together to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. It's to recognize when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they had to live in tents. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness during those 40 years to them. So they would leave their own homes and come to Jerusalem and basically have a big Jewish camping trip. Now, I can't speak for you, but camping's not my favorite thing in the world. I mean, for me, a tough camping experience is when the Holiday Inn's air conditioning goes out. You know, I just am not much of a camper at all. But for the Jews, this week-long camping experience with other people was just wonderful. In fact, Josephus, who was an early historian, Jewish, not Christian, commented on the Feast of Booths, and he described it in Jerusalem as multicolored and loud and celebrative and joyful like no other feast the Jews would celebrate. So that's what was going on in Jerusalem at this time, the Feast of Booths. And I probably ought to just take a moment and say, Moments of Hope Church is kind of celebrating the Feast of Booths ourselves. Uh, We don't have a permanent home. We're having to go from place to place to place. We started at AG, went to the River Place for a while, movement mortgage for a while, and we don't know what's next. We're just doing what the Israelites had to do. In Numbers 9, it's articulated so well that they had a cloud that would surround them during the day if they were camped and protect them. That was God's living presence. And they'd have a fire by night. There was a fire wall around them, protecting them from any predators who'd want to come against them, human or beast. And amazingly, when that cloud would lift and move, the people had to pack up their tents and move as well. When that cloud at night started to move, could be three o'clock in the morning in the pitch dark of night, they would have to pack up their tents and start to move. God was trying to teach them immediate obedience. Folks, you need to know that delayed obedience is disobedience. And God wants all of us to remember that when he commands us to move, we've got to move right then and there. He was trying to teach the Israelites the importance of immediate obedience to whatever he commanded them to do. So again, in remembrance of that, annually there'd be a week-long feast of booths for the Jews where they'd go live in tents and remember when they had to do that for 40 years and follow the cloud by day and the fire by night as we're having to do right now as a church. And one day we'll look back on, I think, these days when we couldn't find a permanent facility and we were waiting upon the Lord. We were practicing immediate obedience when he commanded us to do something. And we will fondly remember those days as powerful and significant in our church's life. So that's what's going on in Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths. And the Jews, notice that's a capital J, the religious leaders were at the Feast of Booths. They were the ones who wanted Jesus dead. So his brothers, that's Jesus' brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, some of you who come from the Roman Catholic tradition know you've been taught that 
Mary never had relations with Joseph. She was conceived immaculately, powerfully, miraculously by the Holy Spirit. And after that, she never slept with Joseph at all. Uh, But interestingly, you have other places in the scripture where you see that Jesus did have actual brothers and sisters. One of those places is in Matthew, the 13th chapter, and you see a very clear statement here in Matthew 13 about Jesus' brothers and sisters. When Jesus was doing miracles, there was this question in Matthew 13, 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Four brothers named here in Matthew's gospel. And are not all his sisters with us? Uh, History says he had two sisters as well. Well, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is a perfect example of familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus had been in that area for so long, they really didn't believe who he was. But clearly the scripture teaches us that Mary and Joseph did have relations and Jesus had four brothers and two sisters. Now, In the Roman Catholic tradition, to be fair, what they say is Joseph was married beforehand and brought six children into the new relationship with Mary. That's a guess. It's a conjecture. We have no biblical proof of it nor historical accuracy thereof. So I think we've just got to believe the obvious that Joseph and Mary were married. Jesus was the first child born to them, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then they had four brothers and two sisters between them, Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters. So here, Jesus' brothers, his four brothers, said to him, you really ought to go to Judea. Now, these guys knew him well, and they saw the power that he had. They knew he was significant, and he said, go on to Judea and basically be a part of the Feast of Booths. I mean, it's so joyful, so celebrative. There are all kinds of people there, and you can go there and show off. You can go there and really claim your power and let everybody follow you like that seemingly is what you want to have happen. That's what they were adjuring Jesus to do. Then the uh, verse four, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They misunderstood Jesus. He didn't want to be a power broker. He didn't want to be famous. They were accusing him of not operating the way he needed to operate. He, He needed to go public and not remain in secret with all that he had to offer. If, if you do these things, they said, show yourself to the world. I mean, take your show on the road. I mean, be popular. Get on social media. Find a television channel that you can be, make exclusively your own. Become popular. Get a big following. That's what they were asking him to do. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. See, they didn't believe in him. <clears throat> they just wanted him to leave and become successful. Maybe they were thinking, hey, you become successful, we can ride your coattails. We can be successful too. So go ahead and make yourself known down south in Judea, in Jerusalem, at the Feast of the Booths with all the people gathered there, one of our biggest celebrations annually. Go do that and maybe we can become popular as well. But they really didn't believe 
in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was God in human flesh. They didn't believe he came to forgive us of our sins. They didn't know what it would mean, the cost, to follow him. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What is he saying there? Well, Jesus' time was the cross. The reason he came to this earth was to die on the cross. And Jesus was saying, here's my time to confront the religious leaders and have them arrest and kill me. It has not yet come. But you can go do whatever you want to whenever you want to do it because your time that God has called you to do is in your hands and you can do whatever you want to do. That's what Jesus was saying. Then in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What a powerful statement. Jesus says to his brothers, you really don't believe in me. My time's not yet come. You're kind of living on your own time, whatever you really want to do. And, and honestly, Jesus was saying, here's when I have to confront these religious leaders and the world, you're going to discover that the world really hates me. It, it hates me. It, it can't hate you. Why? Because you're not taking a courageous stand. But Jesus is going to claim to be God, to be the forgiver of sins, and demand that those who follow him drink of his blood and eat of his flesh, give their lives totally and completely to him. But it does hate me, Jesus said. And why? Because it, he testifies that the works of the world are evil. Now, dear friends, Jesus would have been accepted had he not challenged the sinfulness of the world. The truth is in our culture today, and one of the reasons Christians are alarmed is our First Amendment rights being challenged, and many people feel like Christian pastors and Christians who are really committed to Jesus hurt them, injure them. And Jesus is trying to say here that when he speaks the truth, the truth will hurt. The truth will convict. One of the works of the Holy Spirit who comes up against our hearts is to convict us of our sins. That's why the culture's understanding of microaggressions really runs in uh, opposition to the teachings of Jesus. If you're worried about always being hurt by something that offends you, you're going to especially be offended by the teachings of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus points out your sin, that which is a holy offense to a holy God. He's going to point out the sin that will drive you to hell unless you confess your sin and repent of it. He's saying very clearly, the world's going to hate me because I'm going to confront the world of its sin. Man, can you imagine if microaggressions existed during the day of Jesus? He would have had practically everybody complaining about him and filing a lawsuit against him and wanting him dead immediately. But that's what happens, folks, when you get convicted of your sin, you hate the person who convicts you, and you want to proclaim they need to be hurt themselves. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. You're going to see in a couple of verses that Jesus said, you going up to the feast, I'm not going to go to the feast, and you really should put a parenthesis here, yet. Uh, because that's what it's implying. I'm not going to go up yet. He does go, but he goes up in secret. But then he says again, my time has not yet come. Now, this is an important statement, folks. He says it two times in the verses that we've just studied. My time has not yet come. What's Jesus saying? 
There is a time and a season and a purpose for everything under heaven. Everything in your life, if you're a lover of Jesus and a follower of him, is under God's sovereign control. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. It was the perfect time to send his son into the world. Why? Roman roads connected the entire Roman Empire. Secondly, there was one common language, Koine Greek, that could be spoken everywhere. And thirdly, there was what's called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that obliterated any possibility of wars and rumors of wars. So all the apostles who wanted to proclaim the gospel throughout all of the world after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension could do so in every place throughout the then-known Roman Empire. All the roads were connected. They could do it in a common language that everybody would understand. And they would do it with the ability not to have ro- uh, wars and rumors of wars impeding their progress from moving forward in the fullness of time, at just the right time, at the exact time. I don't know what you're waiting for. Moments of Hope Church is waiting for God to reveal to us our permanent location, our permanent place to be. He has thus far not showed us yet, but we are absolutely convinced that there's a perfect time for God to reveal that, and he'll not reveal it one day before he wants to reveal it. Whatever you're going through in life right now, my guess is most of you are waiting on something. Wait well. May I say it again? Wait well. Wait knowing that Romans 8, 28 is true, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All means all. Everything in your life. Continue to trust him. Continue to let him give you guidance. Praise God for the painful stuff you're going through. Man, that is something the enemy absolutely hates. Because what you're saying to the enemy is, I think God's in control of that too. And he's somehow working that for my good and his glory. So in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God will come through for you. Keep waiting well. It's something that the Lord would want all of us to do today. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio with a conversation about breaking the habit of people-pleasing. We'll be right back. In our community, there are countless people at the intersection of homelessness and addiction. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. And for over 80 years, the Rescue Mission has been helping people who struggle with addiction in our community. You know, there are many great programs that offer people struggling with addiction a path to sobriety and recovery. But what comes after someone gets clean? Often those battling addiction have an inconsistent work history or criminal charges, Most have stunted emotional growth. And after they've achieved sobriety, how do they maintain long-term employment? This is where Community Matters Cafe makes a huge impact in their lives. Community Matters Cafe is more than just good food and wonderful house-roasted coffee. It's an extension program of Charlotte Rescue Mission that is transforming lives. And after men and women graduate from Charlotte Rescue Mission's 120-day Rebound Men's and Dove's Nest Women's Residential Programs, they have the option to enroll in the Life Skills Program at Community Matters Cafe. During the six-month program, the students learn a variety of critical life skills in a restaurant setting that help them get and keep long-term employment. Community Matters Cafe is located diagonally opposite the Panther Practice Fields at the corner of Cedar and West First Street. 
Charlotte Rescue Mission is so grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church in this vital work of transforming lives. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in this studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jen. It's great being with you as well. Well, David, in this morning's e-devotions, you challenge us to take a stand for truth, especially in today's polarized culture. How do we do this? Well, Jesus said, beware when all people speak well of you. Mm. And I think what he's suggesting there is that if everybody's speaking well of you, you're probably not taking a strong stand for him and for truth. Because the truth is that truth by its very definition is exclusive. And when you speak the truth, especially from God's word, you're going to have some segment in our polarized society that just doesn't like that truth. So I would encourage every one of our listeners to, A, know the truth of what Jesus wants us to believe, and B, be courageous and stand for that truth. You know, it's interesting to me that in that last list of those who will be thrown into the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, the first persons that are described there are the cowardly. Wow. You know, above the sexually immoral and all the godless reprobates, it's the cowardly. And that's because I think anybody who follows Jesus needs to recognize he's calling us to courage. He's calling us to understand the cost of discipleship. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his very famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, who said, when Jesus bids a person to come and follow him, he bids them to come and die. You know, that's what caused in John 6, the 20,000 who were following Jesus to suddenly go to 12 in a heartbeat because Jesus laid out for them the cost of discipleship, that they would have to be willing to die for him as he called them. And that's what's happening, I think, in today's culture. We have a lot of Christians who are tepid, lukewarm, Mm -hmm. and aren't really taking stands. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the Christian faith has no punch today. In Luke, the 14th chapter, Jesus made it very clear, if you're going to build the tower, count the cost beforehand. You don't want to get halfway through building the tower and then leave it there and people come and mock you for not being able to complete it. Nor do you want to be like a soldier who's ready to go out to war and you have 10,000 troops and find out your enemy has 20,000 troops and you go out and get your you-know-what handed to you. (laughs) Uh, You just don't want to do that. So count the cost before you ever make the decision to follow Jesus. But if you choose to follow him, be courageous, know the truth, speak the truth, and when that happens, you're going to have some people who just don't like you because of the stand you're taking. And bottom line, good for you. You know, that may be the proof that you're truly following Jesus. And I think when we get to heaven, there are going to be examples that Jesus presents to the Father of proof that we followed him. And one of those might be the culture and its lies and lust arguing with us because of the stands we have taken for the Lord. Well, we appreciate, even as listeners, just how much of a stand you have taken for truth and equipped us in how to do that. And I think that we could be encouraged by just stepping out in maybe our social media and just spreading truth. Maybe that might be somebody's first step of being courageous. Yeah, and if they get resistance from people out there, praise God. Maybe that's the proof that you really are taking a strong stand for Jesus, and he's marking that in heaven going, 
good work. Good for you. I'm proud of you. Well done, good and faithful servant, because the pupil isn't greater than the teacher. Jesus spoke truth. It cost him. Those of us who follow him must also speak truth. It will cost Mm -hmm. us as well. This is so good at overcoming people-pleasing. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen. And listeners, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. There you can subscribe to my daily written Moments of Hope. They'll arrive in your inbox at 7 o'clock every morning from my heart to yours to begin your day free of charge with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our Sunday morning worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock, in person or by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. Also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for godly wisdom for the leaders in our nation.